upset, you prick. Sorry. Now, don't just be sorry. Think for one second. I dropped a peanut M&M and it rolled over here. Am I going to walk around and rip your lights down in the middle of a scene? Those are Christmas lights. I put them up to make everyone happy. This week on Plot Points Podcast, we tell a true story in a fictional way. We discuss the feral decadence of Oliver Stone and MC comes alive during the award season. This is Plot Points Podcast. Hi, this is Hi, this is Mark with Plot Points Podcast. <laughs> I'm ready. All right. We're we already ready? started. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think this should make it into the podcast. <laughs> uh, hi, this is Mark with Plot Points Podcast. I'll leave that in. What the hell? I don't give a shit. Uh, we are coming to you again from downtown, beautiful downtown Newport Beach. Uh, we have the original three, the uh, the three amigos, the three amigas, whatever you want to say. There's uh, Mr. Toby Walwork. And this is the sound of my voice. And there is Mrs. Uh, Mary Claire Anderson, Princess Van Kempen. Nailed it. Got them all this time. <laughs> Even the Mrs. I was waiting for you to miss that. No, to I got To be able it. to correct you. I had to sit with a little cheat sheet for many, many hours and just <laughs> punch that into my brain. Uh, so we uh, are facing uh, some really cool awards show uh, uh, upcoming things. We'll probably do a Oscar pod- podcast. Uh, Mary Claire is shaking her head and smiling. Guys, it's award season. It this is. is my season. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I come to life. It's my Super Bowl. The Academy Awards is the best day of the year. Second is the Golden Globes. So I'm I'm very excited that we're in full swing. Uh, yeah, we had to bring a red carpet for her this time so that so <laughs> she could come to the table. What was strange was it was already in the trunk of her car. <laughs> she just drives well, around. Ready to go. That and the tiara. Well, she yeah. always has that with her. So. Well, I uh, have mine right here. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Academy Award-nominated um, scripts today, but we'll do a full uh, Oscar podcast at some point uh, this month. Uh, the Oscars are March 4th, I yes. think. Yes. Uh, I'm pretty sure. So uh, – Anyway, I um, have been pretty busy. We're doing a lot of things uh, at uh, in my empire. No, no, <laughs> I went to um, a friend's screening last week, uh, Josh Eisenstadt. He's a director who I also wrote two scripts for that have never been produced yet. But um, it was good to see him and his family. And it was fun. It was up at USC f- uh, Film School, the George Lucas Building, the Ray Stark Theater, a great place. To, it was a it's a two hundred seat theater with um, beautiful wood appointed uh, trim and well, just nice. And then uh, I'm also this week on Friday going uh, Friday Saturday, no Thursday, no next week. No. <laughs> well, I'm really glad the listener knows your schedule. <laughs> <laughs> going to the final draft awards, which are uh, called the Big Break, um, which. They honor a couple writers, and uh, they used to have a great speaker, though. The one year they had Nancy Myers, she was really terrific, but she came in and said, 
um, I think I misunderstood this. I thought you were all beginner beginning <laughs> writers. So she had prepared a speech about beginning for beginning writers, but she 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 was quite quite interesting. And they always have uh, they had um, Tom Lennon the from Reno nine one one. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He, the actor. Him mm-hmm. and him and the guy who plays the kind of crazy cop who always gets his face licked by That's the uh, Ben Garant. Yeah, they're the, writing partners. They were they were uh, hosts one year, and oh my god, they they <laughs> slayed us. So, so I felt really Hollywoody this last couple uh, couple weeks. It was uh, it was good to, to actually go attend a screening again, um, and then um, working on writing. Are you guys doing anything writing wise? No. Uh, I dusted off uh, last week. Uh, it's kind of. Uh, I hope no one at work listens to this. Uh, we had um, we we had a lot of deadline stuff uh-huh. that meant like long hours, but there was a lot of waiting. So I took advantage of that and I opened up that uh, that Doctor Who spec that I was joking about. <laughs> right. uh, and I was just and I was going through it and I was I, I've always been really lucky that when I read stuff that's more than like a week old, it's like fresh. I'm like. Oh, hey, who wrote this? Oh, that's what he got. You know, I don't, I don't read it thinking about what I meant when I. So I was able to look at it. Um, obviously, I'm always disappointed. I, I have a, uh, I'm not as, I'm not as good a typist as I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not writing, by the way. There's that's true. Funny quote about that. But, um, but uh, so I was disappointed at like as now I'm reading it and I was like, boy, I thought I was waxing, you know, great, and then I, I missed an entire word here that changes the meaning. So I was going through and doing that, but. Uh, you know, as we often talk about, that kind of revising and editing is is an important part of the process. So Absolutely. that was nice, and it kind of made me like it, even though I felt a lot of it suddenly wasn't as relevant. But I, I'm still going to do a polish. I'm going to so, do another. Suddenly process. wasn't as relevant because because, because the um, the show itself trod some of those. Although I think I did it better, uh, <laughs> but the, the show itself trod some of those um, planks. I'm being very vague about a show. Nobody oh, okay. knows anything about it. Oh, anymore. okay, all right. Basically, there's an element that I put in that's never been in any episodes before, and then suddenly in the Christmas episode, they a very did it. special, the very special Christmas episode, which was uh, no, 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 not so special. The the the, the old Doctor transcended the uh, material, but Who's we won't the, get into that. The new Doctor's uh, woman, Jodie Whit- uh, Jody Whittaker. Yeah. In fact, I just assigned to attack the block. Yes, to, she's an attack the block. Yeah, to my uh, intro class. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, I had not put attack that together. Attack the block. Yeah. She's also in the British show uh, uh, Broadchurch. Broadchurch. She's fantastic. Yeah. She's Very. Good. She she plays the mother, right? She plays. Broadchurch. Yeah. She plays who, Danny's mother, the, right. the victim. The first. Mother. The first season. Yeah, but she's also in it. Oh. Afterwards, because it all it all it stays in that town because they did three seasons. It stays in that town, which kind of makes it like the murder she wrote capital mm-hmm. of of the UK. It's like yeah. move away, <laughs> bad things happen here. Yeah, don't invite it Jessica Fletcher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Fletcher. How about the? <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, well, let's uh, segue into what are we watching? Um, which I started watching. I watched the first episode of The Alienist, mm. and. Uh, I, the criticisms of it, I think, are valid. They have nothing to do with the quality of the show. It's it really is well done, and I am a, such a fan of that book. I don't. If you've never, if you only read one book and you're interested in that kind of thing, that book is it's written by a historian. Caleb Carr is a historian, yeah. and it is so incredible. And they try to capture that. Uh, the only my only criticism of it is it's so dark. It's unremittingly. Brutal and dark and ugly, and I understand that New York during that time was like that. But there's got to be some times where people laughed. Nobody laughs. Nobody smiles in the first episode. So, 
but the criticism, which I think is valid, is that if this had been done 10 years ago, it would be startling. But now it just seems like another procedural, serial killer procedural that we've seen over and over again, especially if you watch like Hannibal or Dexter or any of those. So, but I'm going to keep watching it. I think for me, the glass is half full as opposed to half empty. Plus, I'm a sucker for that stuff. Um, and I also watched uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which we're going to talk about a little bit. And I, <clears throat> I did enjoy that quite a bit. Um, and I think it's it deserves all the accolades mm-hmm. it got. So, what are you guys watching? Um, so I knocked out. I I'm a Movie Pass uh, subscriber and have been going like pretty religiously on the weekend. I've knocked out a few movies. Um, that you know, I finally saw the Last Jedi, which I really, really enjoyed. I'm not—I don't have really a dog in that fight when it comes to Star Wars. Like, I'm mm. an enthusiast, but I'm not like a fangirl or a fanboy. And I feel like some of the criticisms there—a lot of it—are from people who are kind of like, "Wow, well, my theory is like different," <laughs> and like, well, "I thought it was going to be this way, and it doesn't really match up to like what I thought it was going to be." And it's like, okay, whatever. But, um, but I also saw I was. <laughs> I was dying when Jeff Lyons brought up Jumanji last podcast because uh, I saw that and loved that film and had been trying to get people to go see it. And people were kind of like, Jumanji, like the sequel. And I was like, it's amazing. <laughs> like, I, I know I'm probably overselling it. No, I'm not. Um, it's it's like I think it's really, really fun and clever. And I like I needed a movie like that. Um, and, and I also saw Paddington, too, which uh, was which is surprise. I guess surprising. so heartwarming. Yeah. yeah. I the love highest that. rated film on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, Rotten 100%. Tomatoes at the moment. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to log in just to get give it a thumbs down just no and somebody it, it. somebody will do that at some point yeah. and honestly they had it was funny there was there was a point where it had a negative review but it was a mistake somebody had written a negative review for the commuter and put, oh. it, on the, oh. put it on the paddington wow. two site accidentally oh, boy. Um, so people were like rioting over that um and so they finally took that off but um but i think that the film is so beautiful and it really is like a very heartwarming tale it's like um, so I've, I've had some converts to, to the Paddington, uh, universe, but, um, but on the TV side, I started to watch the, I was a big fan of, uh, the first season of Ryan Murphy's American Crime, uh, the OJ Simpson, uh, you know, trial that sort of examined the, that subject matter from a few different perspectives, like the defense, the prosecution. And so I came back for the assassination of Gianni Versace, uh, the first season or the first episode was uh, two weeks ago now, but, um, but it's adapted from a nonfiction book about sort of the tale of Andrew Cunanan. And it really is more of like Andrew Cunanan's story, but, um, but it talks about sort of the homophobia at that time, you know, the AIDS crisis, gay rights, while, you know, the first season with OJ sort of focused on, you know, racism and police misconduct and things like that. But I think it's interesting from a writing perspective because they're also telling the story in reverse. Also, they start with Versace's death and he was actually the last victim of Cunanan's. And so there's some guesswork there, but they're trying to pull the pieces together. And I think it's interesting the way that they're sort of telling the story. And it's really different from the OJ version, you know, of course, but, um, but I think I'm here for a few more episodes. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good. Tobe, what are you um, watching? Okay. Um, gosh, I always go blank at this time. Recently, I uh, I think in the last episode I talked about uh, I got into uh, This Is Us. Right. And uh, when this episode drops, it'll be right before Super Bowl weekend. Mm-hmm. Right after the Super Bowl, which apparently is a very popular football game, <laughs> uh, there's an episode of This Is Us. Mm-hmm. Um, With the big reveal. And it's the big reveal. And uh, obviously, if you don't know what the show is, this isn't going to ma- matter to you anyway, but... Um, they, they they do something so clever with the narrative um, that the time shifting, which is not a gimmick, uh, it's just a it's just a way of telling multiple overlapping story. It's almost like 
unweaving something, laying out all the pieces, and then looking at each one of them as it, as it shows where other pieces had lo- gone over it, but mm-hmm. we're just going to follow that. I, mm-hmm. I think it's really clever. I'm, I'm really pleased and surprised that a network show does something that interesting. This is the tail end of the second season, but it it's, it's worth, honestly, watch the pilot mm-hmm. and then try not to watch anymore. Yeah. Um, so the other thing, um, that we thought about discussing was, um, if we could bring back one actor, director, producer, or writer back to life, who would that be? Um, my choice would be Paul Newman, but not only because he was a great actor, but because he associated himself with really terrific films. Uh, what about you, Tobe? Uh, I honestly, I, I have a really tough time with this kind of thing because, um, I'm I'm a big of the belief that like while that person was there we got that work and that's great as pa- as far as people that you know we lost definitely too soon um, when we watch the Academy Awards half of those people we're gonna see, feel that way so I'm I'm kind of dancing around the answer because I don't really have one okay but when you brought it up one of the people I thought of just out of curiosity is and and you can tell me her name because I don't even know her name. The woman that wrote Romancing the Stone. Because the story with that is she wrote Romancing the Stone, sold it. Spielberg was exec producing it. It's a huge, f- successful film. They had just started working on a sequel, and she oh, died. Oh, Matheson. Is that who you're talking no, about? No, no, Matheson. Oh, okay. No, no. No. And she she died in a car accident, wasn't it? Like <laughs> yeah, she died. She died in a car that they gave her. They gave her for romancing for the stone. romancing the stone. It she was died such a mega a... hit. Yeah, and I'm just curious because you know, I mean, that film is it's a real fun film, and I always point out it holds up except for the music is awful. But um, I'm just curious what we would have seen from her. Yeah, you know that's a true tragedy, and she, I think romancing the Stor- stone is one of the most perfect films of that genre ever ever done, and. Uh, of course, the second the the sequel wasn't quite as good. No, but, the, jewel, uh, the Jewel of the Nile, um, which I, I, I saw in a theater, is, I was two, uh, but it was it it wasn't Romancing the Stone. Yeah, it was Diane Thomas. I'm sorry, I didn't. I, okay. yeah, Diane Thomas was the uh, writer. Uh, Mary Claire, who'd you okay, bring I have back? a list. Oh boy, um, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> this is difficult. Even in Mark's cast, would be like name, like write down a list of three movies. That, like I'm like I have thirteen. <laughs> These all right. are all. We'll tell my the affiliates that we might be going long. <laughs> um, when you initially, yeah, when we were initially discussing this, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you go to more of like the tragic turn, the people that left us too soon or too early, and and so you know, I might. Uh, mine immediately went to Heath Ledger, who, mm. um, yeah, who had, you know, sort of an accidental overdose. And that was probably his his biggest year in terms of his film. Like his, I mean, in terms of coming to fruition, he had already, already had a long career, but he won, you know, the Oscar that next year um, post. For the Joker. Um, yeah, for uh, The Dark Knight. And, um, and I think that that was pretty tragic uh, in terms of losing such a powerful actor. Um, I also think of... You know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, another person that had an accidental overdose who I have always liked as an actor Terrific as well. Actor. Yeah, yeah, who could absolutely. do so many different things, um, both dramatic, comedic. I mean, that that one hit a little bit hard. Um, and I also thought of Bernie Mac as well, um, who died of pneumonia. And, and that was pretty devastating overall. I think he was a real, real big personality and it had, you know, sort of a great reputation in the industry for his work ethic, for his professionalism, and just for being an all-around, like, amazing person. He was, and so, yeah, he was – He was. well, wasn't he the one that adopted 
his uh, sister's kids sister's or something. Kids. The, the, and they the, did the basis of his show, show was, was, right. was in, in fact yeah. it's good. So a good, human yeah, the Bernie Mac too. show. Yeah, and yeah, I, I really yeah. liked that show when I was younger as well. I was at that right age where that sort of fit in with what my you know my my uh, you know lightly schedule. But um, but yeah, so those are all people I think that are, are definitely missed in the industry. Okay. Well, um, somebody tell us, one one of you guys, where we can, our audience uh, of dead radio people can find us and uh, what they can do to contact us if necessary. Yeah, you can reach us at plotpoints.com if you have a question or want to leave a comment. You can already, or you can always call us at 919-SCRIPTS and leave a message. Uh, if you have questions or thoughts or comments, we want to hear it all, so, uh, so reach out. Yes, thanks, MC. Okay, this week uh, I'm going to focus on Oliver Stone and probably going to only do half of it uh, because it's quite extensive and we probably have a lot to say about him as a filmmaker. Um, so this is part one of Oliver Stone. Part two will be hopefully the next podcast. Producer, director, writer Oliver Stone was born in 1946 in New York City. It's posited by some that Stone's parents' divorce when he was young impacted him deeply, and some of that is reflected in his films. His father was a stockbroker and supposedly the model for the Michael Douglas Wall Street character. Greed is good. Um, because of the divorce, Stone spent a lot of time with his maternal grandparents in France, and he worked at the Mercantile Exchange, which also showed up in his film Wall Street, which I had no idea. I guess he was from money. He, he had some money. At the age of 18, he quit Yale and taught English in Saigon. Um, afterwards, he worked as a wiper, which is someone, not no joke here, but someone who cleans the engine room on a United States merchant marine ship. That was 1966. In 67, he volunteered for combat duty in Vietnam in the Army. He was wounded twice in combat, and he has, I don't know, one, two, three, maybe 12 uh, awards, military awards, including the Bronze Star for Heroism, the Purple Heart. Um, so he was very much invested in that war. After Nam, he eventually co completed college in 1971, and one of his teachers was Martin Scorsese, oddly enough. Stone did a variety of odd jobs while he was learning how to write and direct. His horror film, Seizure, in 1974 marked his directorial debut. Even back then, he considered uh, low budget as an entree into Hollywood his best bet, so he did uh, these kind of small-budget horror films. In 1978, which I didn't know, he wrote uh, Conan the Barbarian. But um, <laughs> his story was set in a post-apocalyptic future where Conan leads an army in a massive battle against a horde of 10,000 mutants. I, I don't think that's canon to the uh, Conan uh, stories. Uh, Millie, John Milius rewrote the script, and Stone got basically no credit. Yeah, I think he kept the title and lost everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Probably spelled the title differently, too. Uh, in 1979, Stone won an Academy Award for adapting the true-life prison story Midnight Express into a hit for British director Alan Parker and producer David Putnam. And the two would later collaborate on a 1996 movie of the stage music Evita. So did you see Midnight Express, MC? Uh, I, yeah, I have. Um, in school, that was a movie that was assigned. It's been a while, but yeah. I have seen it. Tope? If you were gifted with cable television in the late 1980s, mm -hmm. uh, you watched the hell out of that yeah. after your parents went to bed. <laughs> right. Stone's screenplay for Midnight Express was criticized by some for its inaccuracies in portraying the events described in the book and vilifying the Turkish people. The original author, Billy Hayes, was played by... Uh, 
I can't remember oh, the actor. It's that one guy that looks like three other guys. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the guy that isn't Treat Williams, but looks right. like Treat Williams. I like Treat Williams. Brad. Brad. Treat, Brad, Brad. Brad. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'm Googling it. All right. <laughs> Instead of us saying Brad, With Brad. apologies Brad. to Brad and yeah. Treat Williams. Yeah. Uh, Brad Davis. Brad yeah. Davis. Oh, you got yeah, it. Yeah. Um, Stone, uh, uh, he spoke out against the film, protesting that he had many Turkish friends while he was in jail. Stone later apologized to Turkey for over-dramatizing the script, but he did not repudiate, repudiate the film's brutality or any of the reality of Turkish prisons. I, you know, I thought that was interesting. I don't, I don't know that I would repudiate anything if somebody came to me and said, you're not portraying this correctly, and I would say, it's a movie. You're supposed to dramatize that stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. however, and, and this might be something to come back to later, because it was based on a true story, how flexible can you be with, yeah. with that? But That's a really good question to ask uh, uh, later on, maybe. Yeah. Another horror film by Stone called The Hand uh, was done in, at Orion Pictures, and I know Toby remembers Orion Pictures. I do. Well, I'm a big RoboCop fan, but yeah, that's a Michael Caine movie? Uh, yeah, it is a Michael Caine yeah. movie, and it, had, it featured that Descent into Madness theme that yeah. Stone liked. Yeah. Um, Michael Caine did it after Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill, which I really liked that film, too. I, I really liked De Palma as a yeah. director, but uh, he wanted to make another horror film, and that was available. Uh, Stan Winston did the effects for that film, and uh, coming back around to John Carpenter, James Horner did the music for that huh. film. So that's kind of interesting. Stone wrote further features, including Brian De Palma's drug lord tale, Scarface, mm -hmm. which he loosely based and I don't get this. He loosely based it on his own addiction to cocaine that he successfully kicked while writing the screenplay. What part of that don't you get? Well, having been addicted to cocaine... I couldn't even think about it without wanting it. So I can't imagine doing a screenplay where you're focusing. Functioning addict. Yeah. You're, you're, well, you're talking about a guy who has a pile of cocaine <laughs> the size of his head, and he's sticking his face into it. And I don't get the – there's a disconnect there for me. Okay. That's interesting. I just was curious. I, I, don't, I don't know how he did it, but good for him. Good for me too. Um, it was an interesting quote about Scarface where um, – Stone said, Al Pacino intimidated me when I watched him in rehearsals. I saw how he turned Tony Montana into something very feral, something hungry and decadent. So I, it must have been in there because obviously Stone's a pretty good writer. Um, he also did Michael Cimino's Year of the Dragon with Mickey Rourke. I think that's pretty – that's an underrated – unfortunately, Michael Cimino had kind of already burned his bridges. With but, Heaven's Gate. Yeah, with Heaven's Gate. Uh, but uh, Year of the Dragon, I think, is – it's also a great performance by uh, Mickey Rourke. Oh yeah, and it's a, I think it's a very underappreciated uh, bit of work. I agree, I agree. You know the the book that was written about Heaven's Gate called uh, Final Cut by Stephen Bach, yeah. who was an executive in charge of that, is fantastic. And even though it's you know old old news, I could not I could not put that book down. So I highly recommend that book for anybody who's interested in film. Um, so Stone wrote Dragon, uh, Year of the Dragon, with the promise by Dino De Laurentiis that he would do Platoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1986, Stone directed two films back-to-back, -back, the critically acclaimed of a commercially unsuccessful Salvador, one of my favorite films, with James Wood yep. and Jim, uh, James Belushi. James Belushi. Yeah. And um, then, then that was shot, shot, shot largely, mm -hmm. easy for me to say, in Mexico. And then Platoon, was, which was finally shot in the Philippines. Um, studios typically resisted Platoon because they thought Deer Hunter, another Michael yeah. Cimino film, and Apocalypse Now were the pinnacle of Vietnam films. And they didn't see why Platoon had any validity. 
Boy, I'll tell you, talk about nobody knows anything, right? Uh, the famous uh, William Goldman quote. By the way, Deer Hunter was, uh, just a side note, was Meryl Streep's first Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Platoon in 1986, considered an anti-war film, of course, starring Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, and Charlie Sheen, who actually gave a wonderful performance in that movie, yeah. uh, was the first film uh, trilogy, was the first film of a trilogy of Vietnam War films directed by, by Stone. Anybody know what they are? Yeah, uh, Born on the Fourth of July, so, and then the other one, I always forget the name of it, but it's... Heaven it's, and Earth. Heaven and Earth, oh, yeah. which is, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's an impossible film to sell. But it's a really beautiful film. Right. Well, the, and it's interesting because the platoon was from Stone's uh, perspective. Uh, Born on the 4th of July was Kovic's yeah. uh, perspective, Ron Kovic, coming back from Vietnam. And uh, Lily Hayslip was the featured character. It was her story in Heaven and Earth about coming back. Yeah. By the way, if anybody knows my Lily, uh, who's in class, don't tell her about Heaven and Earth because she's <laughs> writing something very similar. So there was a fourth film called Pinkville. And I, I meant to look it up, and I didn't. But it was canceled. Uh, it was supposed to be part of his Vietnam trilogy, but it was canceled because of the writer's strike. So Platoon uh, won Best Picture, uh, Best Director, Best Film Editing. It was nominated for Screenplay, Cinematography, Supporting Actors, Sound. Um, well, actually, it won Best Sound, which I, I you yeah, know, that's Sound always, Mixing or Sound Editing? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Well, actually, the the rule of thumb for uh, sound editing is the loudest film wins. That's <laughs> that's that is like if you look at it statistically, it's the if you can make it loud, it'll win. Uh -huh. Kirk, he got it this year. Uh, <laughs> it also won some BAFTA awards, uh, Directors Guild of America, Golden Globes, Silver Bear Awards, which I've never heard of, Independent Spirit Awards, Writers Guild of America Awards for Best Screenplay. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars, calling it the best film of the year and the ninth best film of the 1980s, which is an odd kind of thing. And well, uh, I, I don't think he said this one is number nine. I think he probably put together the whole ten. Uh, ninth best, ninth best is what yeah, it was. Yeah, but I don't think he just went there like arbitrarily. Like, I bet there's eight more movies coming out that are going to kick this one's <laughs> ass. But that, that one is number nine. Yeah, he's probably got a list for the for the 80s. Siskel, uh, Gene Siskel, Siskel and Ebert also uh, awarded the film four out of four stars. Vincent Camby, I think he's New York Times, yeah. uh, described Platoon as possibly the best work of any kind about the Vietnam War. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 88% based on 60 reviews and a Metacritic award of 92 out of 100. Um, so I'm gonna, we're going to break at this point, but I want to mention a, a film called Break, which Stone wrote before Platoon. Uh, after his tour of duty, he wrote this war film, uh, and it was his semi-autobiographical account detailing his experiences with his parents at, and his time in Vietnam. And that fed into Platoon. Yeah. That became Platoon Is, later isn't on. That, isn't that the film he made at NYU? Like, I, I believe he's in that film. He never made this particular oh, film. okay. Because he did but make he a film. parts of the script. Is right, that what you're yeah. for Platoon. Yeah, right. Platoon. Well, the, the, the unusual part about this is he sent this script to uh, Jim Morrison to, to portray the main character. Hmm. And Morrison had it with him uh, when he died in Paris. And um, after, more, after Morrison's death, he, the script uh, was returned to Stone. So that would have been an interesting choice for that character, yeah. Jim yeah, Morrison. Like yeah. So we're going to take a break at this point on this, and I'll do the second half of Oliver Stone uh, on the next podcast. But uh, what do you guys think? I mean, you obviously 
we have different generations of filmmakers or filmgoers here. So what do you guys think about Yeah, my takeaway, I mean, watching uh, Platoon and uh, Born on the Fourth of July and some of those other movies that you mentioned, I always felt like, I mean, he really doesn't shy away from the tougher stories and really relishes it, I feel like. I mean, I always feel like you're really fully immersed in the experience watching these and so they're harder to watch um which i think is impressive i don't, I don't think he's a fearful writer i think he really goes for it and tells those stories that move you and, and that maybe you don't want to acknowledge or see and i think you always walk away with an experience um i would agree with that 100 you know. percent. yeah yeah I, I i think he's um god actually i'll be honest all i can think about right now is when i saw platoon mm. uh i was i was i was probably too young my uh, a good friend of mine, his father was a vet, and he took us to see it. And um, some of the details are patchy, but if my friend JC is listening, I'm talking about you. Mm. Um, he took us to see it, and we were both, uh, yeah, yeah, guns and this would be awesome. And the drive home, uh, you you could have heard a pin drop. Mm. There was nothing. And 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 a lot of vets, a lot of people that know vets will tell you that they don't, they don't talk about it. Yeah, it's right. other vets. Very that's powerful. Like, you know, film. it's a big part of what PTSD is about. And yeah. and, and, and I do, but I do remember knowing, just having just enough smarts to go. You are not going to be the person that breaks the silence right now with something like, "Hey, ice cream," you know. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, that I love the polarization that I felt. Stone is excellent at at kissing the baby and kicking the dog. And I can remember very vividly hating Tom Berenger. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And thinking Willem Dafoe was a freaking hero. Yeah. 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 And so being so devastated. Yeah. yeah. Like when that, that goes on. And that was like the one thing. It was like that character, it, the, the parallels and the dynamic between the two of them, it just is like really astounding the way that he did that. But. I also think uh, if you've never seen Salvador, it is an incredible yeah, movie. That's a it was movie. so, you know, the, the nuance for the James Wood, the Jim Wood character, uh, James Woods, is incredible. I mean, he's a, he's a piece of crap, but at the same time, he's such, got such drive and spirit. Um, yeah, actually, I, but I think it's very interesting. I think that he's he's drifted into nonfiction filmmaking right, a lot, uh, but unfortunately, he's also worked himself into the narrative. Which, when you realize that a lot of his earlier films right. were autobiographical, and now his later films, he's actively in them. This is a film where I'm going to talk to Fidel Castro, and it's like, yeah, well, you're not Barbara Walters. Like Barbara <laughs> Walters couldn't have made a platoon. Why? Why would you do this? I'm curious. I'm curious where that where that came from. Well, I think because he's Stone. As I think MC made the point, Stone always shoots from his heart. When he writes, he doesn't write because he wants to make money or he mm-hmm. wants to make a a funny film. He writes because he has a something. He's very purpose driven, and uh, I think that's when, like Salvador, like I said, Salvador is. Uh, amazing yeah you know and so is platoon and so is uh you know uh, scarface and those are really terrific films with great characters and a great story but it's all from his intern he's all in- he's internalized all that so anyway we'll talk more about uh, oliver stone um on the next podcast we'll finish it up there's another three or four pages of his uh accomplishments um so Segwaying from this is a writer director segwaying from Mr. Stone to the Academy Awards. Uh, Mary Claire is doing going to do a segment on uh, the Academy Award nominated screenplays, which are unusual because 
Yeah, because four out of five of them are writer-directors this year um, for all original screenplay nominees. So there are five nominees for the category, you know, because, of course, there is adapted as well. But for the original, four out of five of them wrote and directed their films. So the nominees are The Big Sick with uh, writers Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani. Oh, I, I did see that. Yeah, nominated. Yeah. Uh, Get Out, Jordan Peele. Lady Bird, written and directed by Greta Gerwig, The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro and Vanessa Taylor, Guillermo del Toro directed, uh, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Martin McDonough wrote and directed that mm, as well. It. So four out of five of them. But also what's really interesting is that three are women, three are people of color, only two prior nominees, and five really, really original stories. That's so, great to hear. Uh, it's a good race. Like there are occasionally, you know, there are other categories that's kind of like, okay, this is definitely who's going to win. Here are some front runners. But I think it's a good mix in this category. It's a very competitive one. Uh, and I think it's also interesting because a lot of these stories, um, you know, are, I mean, they're fantastically written, but they're, uh, heartbreaking adaptions of their own life experiences and really, really authentic to the writers. I mean, especially the big sick, uh, lady bird and also get out. Um, and, and I think that, uh, I think there are, I think I know kind of what should win and what will win, but, um, but I think, uh, it's, it's a good race and it could be anybody's game. Um, so I don't know if you have thoughts on what was, does anybody know if Ebbing, uh, Missouri was based on, a true story or or inspire so unique and so original uh i could see get out and i could see shape of water and Lady Bird and stuff but ebbing the three billboards uh conceit the idea of using the three billboards to force a police department into uh working on a case i thought that was really original anybody know if I, it, I don't know for sure i i you know snarkily would say well there's a lot of angry ladies out there and <laughs> it's pretty valid so yeah it's probably inspired by watching the news yeah, you don't you really don't want to make fun of the reason she's doing it no. it's, it's a pretty horrible uh crime but um it's also got a very intriguing well we'll, we'll see we can talk about it. when we do the academy awards um podcast which will probably be the next one um or the one after that we can talk about those i what do you mary claire do you have any predictions yeah i tend to think it is between so mcdonough i will say he won at the golden globes uh for for best, three three billboards was but, it best picture he did win for, but you know, at the Golds they they break it down drama versus comedy, um, comedy. Yeah. yeah. So he won for the drama component, and his his script did win as well. So he won that award also. Um, but I tend to, I mean, and also I should note that Get Out and Lady Bird were not nominated for their scripts. Mm. Um, so the or the Academy Awards rectified that mistake, and so they are nominated here. Um, I think the Oscars tend to be more creative and think outside of the box when it comes to what they're rewarding for original story. Like think movies like, you know, her one best uh, original screenplay, Eternal Sunshine, Juno. Um, so I would put my money on some of the fresher minds. Like I think it will probably go to Get Out. I think that was one of the more transcendental pieces of art this year. I think the way that the script plays with misdirection and the audience expectation and really mixes that genre too. There are a lot of different things that you do not expect going into that film. Like, and the intent is there. Like it's the intent is there in terms of scaring you, but also making you laugh and also inciting a conversation around right. something like race. And I think that the best films do that. You know, they disrupt our ideas and our preconception about assigning categories to people or things. And that really speaks to the writing and also just uh, the way that the film, uh, you know, speaks in terms of the direction and whatnot. So I do think I, it will probably go to Jordan Peele. I think that's where he, you know, a lot of times the Academy Awards will get a bit political and that's where they'll assign maybe a victory there. Um, so he won't win maybe in other categories, but he's, I think, going to get it there. And But I also think it, Gerwig could win there also. And so 
um, because that script is really, really autobiographical, autobiographical, and um, and speaks to you know sort of a coming age, which people love sort of to write that. But I also I really like the Big Sick too. I mean, and that breaks sort of the three act structure also, and I think there are a lot of unique things they do in that script. So I have a lot to say, obviously, about all of these scripts. But I do think Get Out is going to take it. Mm. If if I had to make a prediction, I would say the three billboards. Um, I just think it was. I, I haven't seen two of the other th- of the five, but and I may change my mind if I see the Shape of Water because I think that's getting. I, I think that looks terrific. Yeah. Um, but and but Lady Bird, I don't know. I that would be. I think that's to me that would be a long shot. Oh, uh, and and let me ask you this. And I saw Lady Bird last night, and I, I was. I, I'm still I'm still thinking about it. I you know it, it's a little bit like my Star Wars take was. I know it was good. I can't know if it was. I can't tell if it was great. Mm. Um, but but it did present this dilemma, and this is the question I'll ask both of you. It's like we've got the best original screenplay. Now the way that the Academy Awards works is that these are all people that work in the industry, and you vote on specific categories that are categories you work. Now, if you're an actor or any position, you can vote for best picture, but to be in best screenplay, you're in the Academy as a, as a screenwriter. Um, I haven't read these screenplays, mm-hmm. but I've seen some of these films. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really curious, particularly because of Lady Bird, because it really did give me a uh, a puzzle. Is especially when you have the director directing their own script. Does the direction elevate the material? Does the screenplay prop up the direction? You know what? I, can we put this discussion off until we do some more of the Academy Awards stuff? Sure. I think it. I think it's a really valid question, and I think we're we're going to be running along if we don't move expeditiously and through the rest of the show. But that's a great question, and I think we should put it, take it, and insert it into either the next show or the show after okay. that. Then so. in, in that case, I'll just reset and just sort of say, as far as, far as best original screenplay, I saw The Big Sick. Um, I really enjoyed it, uh, and uh, did Aziza Azaria write? write the no, no, no. It's, no, no, it's no. Kumail Nanjiani. Oh, and, okay. and, different and, guy. and it's his wife. You know, right. yeah. it's based right. on and their it, true story. It's very much based on their true Emily story, Gordon. and I think in those respects, in a way, it kind of takes away from it. Not that it, it's not great, but it's like, yeah, but it really happened to you. Yeah. So. You didn't well, have to and it's dramatized, it and we'll discuss that when we get to questions because I think the way that they wrote their script is really, really interesting. It took them five years to ultimately wow. write their script overall, and they had people that came in and say, you need to remove some of this or you need to dramatize it. Um, you need to not be as close to this as you're writing yeah. it, which I think is really important when you're writing your own stories as well. Um, yeah, but, we're going through that in class. Right, yeah, there's, exactly. There's actually a thing about that. That's a, a great point because uh, it's uh, Herzog. Uh, Werner Herzog, because he also makes documentaries, mm-hmm. but he'll he'll create things in that documentary. And someone was like, well, you, you, can you really do that if something is real? And it's like, well, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to create and reveal an inner truth. Now, right. with documentary, you have a, you have an issues about objectivity that right. you don't necessarily right. have. They in, have, all, in, have yeah, but every, every documentary has, right. but has a subjective point of view. You're trying to reveal a, a, a deeper truth, and that was one of the things they said about The Big Sick was you had to take some things out of it to make it 
realer. Mm. And he's like, but those are things that really happen. Well, right, because like, I mean, think about the way that you out. write. I mean, especially when you're writing about yourself, you tend to idealize it. You, you know, like you don't want yeah. to tr- talk about sort of the painful truths associated with how you reacted in this situation or whatnot. And so you have to separate yourself and say, like, this is what this character would do. Um, because, yeah, well, I think when you, again, tend to write out a situation, you idealize it in some ways. Well, yeah. it, it, conversely, you can write you can write really true to the story and make yourself look really bad so nobody will ever like you. Yep. And part of the job of the screenwriter is to polarize people toward the main character and away, and away from the villain. And interestingly, that is uh, my issue with Lady Bird. Mm. Um, and careful not to give anything away. By the virtue of the fact that she is the titular character mm-hmm. and she is the main character, therefore she is the protagonist. She's the focal character. However, right? she's not – she doesn't do – she doesn't do things that would make her the main character, but that's you know that's just oh, where she's we obviously landed. yeah she's but, obviously but but um, I think some of the characters are skewed negative to make her look positive mm. in a way that just didn't ring as as authentic for me. Like, of course she's perfect and she knows everything because she's a seventeen year old teenager. And I remember enough about being a seventeen year old teenager to remember that feeling, mm-hmm. but also knowing that objectively it wasn't true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something I had a bit of a problem with within the film. Mm. Well, well, I think these, these, this is a fascinating discussion. So let's remember it and bring it back up as we work through uh, the Academy Award nominations in the next couple podcasts. Because I think we'll have ch- time to do two before the Academy Awards, right? At mm-hmm. least, right? Yeah. And we'll have more information. Like by that point, the BAFTAs will be over. And that really is the last award ceremony. That'll be a bit more telling in terms of what people are thinking. Yeah, so. That's a good point, too. Golden Globes and... And the uh, DGAs. That hasn't been announced uh, yet either. So that'll be obviously Writers very, very Guild telling. Awards. Yeah, same with that. Yeah. Um, producers, that that is done. but And the Critics' Choice Award, but, uh, SAGs, all of that. But we have some things in front of us that will help. And also, not... I mean, this really could wait for the for the specifically the Academy Awards uh, show, but uh, documentaries are written, mm-hmm. and a lot of the documentary features and short subjects are already available uh, streaming to watch because mm-hmm. they're not considered theatrical powerhouses. Um, I've seen a couple. Um, there's one called Knife Skills, which is a documentary short. Uh, it's made by a guy named Thomas Lennon, but it's not not Tom that Lennon. Thomas Lennon. And uh, that I haven't seen, but looks like it's very, very powerful. Um, okay, well, uh, again, we'll cover it. But, but going yeah, forward, but I would okay? just say those are films you can you can seek out before the Academy Awards and decide for and yourself. watch them. Yeah, okay, good, good tips. I, I like watching the shorts. I think the shorts are really amazing. Yeah, they're easy; you can knock them all yeah. out. So. Well, plus the animated ones are fantastic. So, all right, we're going to move into the Q and A. Um, we have a question from Stephanie. And uh, I'll play that now. Hi, Paul Points. This is Stephanie from Irvine. My question for you guys is, is it useful to read a bad script to see what not to do? Thanks so much. So thanks, Stephanie, for your question. The, the concept of reading bad scripts, I don't think you should, you should seek out bad scripts to, to, watch, to read. But if you're curious as to how a movie turned out not to your liking – and you want to find out if the script was like that, I think that's a great way to go. But if you're reading a bad script, I think that I, I always tell my class, you can learn more from bad movies and bad scripts than you can from the good ones. Because the good ones are almost magical in, in, in many ways. So I think it I think it has validity. Um, I will say that reading a script is a lot of work, period. It's a couple hours of your life. 
So, but so why change? Why look at a bad script? But if you're curious as to how to avoid some of the pitfalls, I think that's a great way to go. Yeah, um, I would see it as maybe like an exercise. Yeah, for yeah. a movie, even that you're watching and that you're kind of like, this doesn't totally work. Yeah, we'll revert back to the script and see. But also to look at the script and say, uh, why isn't this working? Is it you know the protagonist isn't as focal or um, you know the theme isn't as present? You know, an exercise in terms of dissect, dissecting it for what you would have done or how to elevate well, it from your plus, perspective. Plus, plus you. One of the things you see in a script is a lot of times you see scenes that aren't shot. And so you're watching the movie and you're wondering why did they go from A to C and then you realize that B is in the script and it was part of the either at least the narrative and it's it's been eliminated. So, yeah, the thing is is you forget or well, I don't know maybe we don't consider it but I I'm always terribly proud of my scripts and I know because of circumstances they don't always turn out the way that I envision them because I'm not doing the actual filming. Um, but that has to be remembered is that the screenwriter is just the first step in the process. Obviously, Toby, you've had a lot of experience as an editor. You you and the director and the producer sometimes and sometimes the actors, well, everybody has influence on the film. So the, the screenwriter is just the first step. So reading a script, going back to that source is a great exercise for all of us. And it also rem makes us remember this was a document at one yeah. time. It wasn't a visual medium. It was just words on paper. So, um, all right, uh, Stephanie, thank you for the question. Uh, it is a very good question. Do we have another one we want to ask? Well, I think maybe we should touch on, I mean, we were doing this in our discussion about the original scripts. I mean, writing your personal story, and even with Oliver Stone, I mean, writing something that's autobiographical, how, how do you do that? Like, what are tips there? Because it, it's... Uh, it's pretty difficult and we see that come through class a lot of times where people mm. bring their story in and, and we see them struggle in the writing process. So, I mean, do you have any tips there? Yeah. I mean, you just got to get out of yourself. It's not, you got to remember that uh, one of the students is writing an autobiographical version of her journey from Vietnam to the United States. And she is a terrific writer and a terrific human being. But some of the comments she was making were, well, I don't want to go too far afield of the story. Well, the problem is if you're writing a memoir, it's fine to be as, as you know, detailed, detailed right? yeah, or as, as true as possible. But if you're writing a film and you really want that film to get some reaction, like she didn't want to put – for instance, there was um, – the, the escape from Vietnam was is very dramatic in her script but not so much in real life. And but and then the on the boat and stuff like that. So you really the other thing is uh, not only if you're writing autobiographically, do you have to remember that's not you you're writing about, but you have to remember that it's OK to make up stuff. It's OK to insert things that because because uh, all the great movies based on true events are fictionalized to some extent. Uh, I remember reading uh, the the example I always give is A Beautiful Mind. Mm -hmm. There was a 400-page book, which I read because it was fascinating, but it was nothing like the movie. And Ron Howard and Akiva Golds Goldsman yeah. got huge criticisms for making uh, what's-his-name so likable or so yeah. so benign. He was – he was a, he deserted his family. He was – you know, even though he was had mental issues, um, he was not a good human being. And Ron Howard said, I want to make a, a love story. That's what I did. So uh, what a beautiful film it turned out to be. Film. Yeah. Well, wait, now, if I can just jump on that, because what, what you're saying is really valid, but some listeners might be thinking, 
if it if it is autobiographical, it has to be true. Well, that's because a lot of times what people bring to class is like, well, that's not what happened. That's right. not what happened in this story. And it's, the problem, I always say, who cares? But, the problem right. with that is much more philosophical because mm-hmm. it's you know what is truth, but truth is your interpretation. Even if it happened to you, you're only one of the people that was there. So mm-hmm. how that can be interpreted by others and, and expanding on it to reveal the meaning or the truth. That's your job. So so it's not cheating to make things up. Well, it's because only also, cheating I mean, if you say that really happened to yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, but your life doesn't break out into a three-act structure either. <laughs> you know, it's like you really have to. It doesn't? <laughs> like, Maybe well, that's what I'm doing wrong. One of the, one of the things – I'm sorry to cut – but one of the things that Mark and I talk about all the time is there was someone in our class who was making a very – they had a really good script – but unfortunately, they talking had about like the bridge guy? four good scripts, and they didn't know where the movie was. Mm. And that was a thing where, and and we we kept trying to focus many, him. Many times we'd no. be like this this part here, and I'm making a gesture with my hands where I'm creating a smaller frame. But right. like this, this is, your is your movie, right. yeah. and that is her, and she's your main character, and this is what happens. And he was like, but it wasn't like that. It was this, that, and the other, and it was that whole thing about like, well, no, that's your movie. What you're talking well, about is the book. Is, what is he was, the, what is, he would is, say is, this is important. Yeah. This has to go in there, and we would say, yes, it is important, but it doesn't have to go in there because it. You can cover that in back exposition or so. It's hard, you know. It's hard to figure out where to focus any story. Yeah. Period. Maybe even but, harder because it's a true story because you've right. got so much extemporaneous yeah. information. Well, yeah, and you're so close to it also. So it's hard right. to remove yourself from it, and you want to share your true, true experience. But yeah, a, a lot of times it's like this what are you trying to say? Yeah. And a lot of times they don't know. They're just trying to tell this personal story to them. And a lot of times it's their first script as well. And they yeah, feel like they need true. to get it out. Yeah. And so it's, it's like a very a typical theme that comes through in class. Like that's a, it's a very consistent problem that we have people bring their real life, true story and they want to write it out as a movie or think it needs to be told. And, and you really have to focus it alongside of what you're trying to tell and, and break yourself away from these characters. Yeah. Even if it doesn't pass the sniff test, as far as concept, even if you're writing something that is probably, uh, has a slim to none chance of getting made because of the propensity or the the overabundance of these types of stories. You really have to still tell it as a story because yeah. it can serve as a writing sample. Exactly, for your you. craftsmanship as a writer right. is not the that's the that's the important. That's thing. the essence. Not just that you went through it. Right, right. is why we should good make point. that movie. Very or good why point. We should. Yeah. All right. Um, so thank you guys. Uh, let's remind our audience again as to how they can get in touch with us. That wonderful question by Stephanie. Thank you so much. Uh, that came through the website where where we have a phone number that you can leave a voicemail message. Yeah, 919scripts or plotpoints.com. Thank you. And the podcast itself is available on iTunes. And very shortly, I want to mention OC Screenwriters will be doing a couple events. We have some good things planned um, coming up in the spring. So we'll be promoting those through the through the podcast also. I can't wait. Um, so I'm going to do uh, the Act 3, and then we're going to wrap this up. Uh, when I, I had written a different Act 3 about technique. Uh, it was inspired by my Thursday intro class when I show and discuss film openings. And it's good, I think. I mean, I'll use it sometime in the future. But on the way to swim last night, um, I saw an innocuous sign that had one word on it, rogue. Uh, it was cardboard on a stick, and it was displayed in an industrial district that was mostly deserted for the weekend. I knew immediately what that sign meant, movie set. You see them all over L.A., less in O.C., but to me, they're unmistakable. I knew that that was a sign for the crew. That's where they had to show up, and it was probably in one of those uh, built, uh, units that they rent. Yeah. The sign got me thinking back to my first film, the first time I stepped on a set. 
I think there are two truly magical places in this world. I'm sure MC would add Disneyland or Disney World. Harry Potter World. <laughs> but for me, a college campus and a movie set are it. I'm lucky enough to be able to experience both regularly. If you've never been on a movie set, it's a remarkable place, a world unto itself. At the same time that there's this consistent undercurrent of a crush of time and money, it's also a place of breathlessness and wonder. You see it so clearly in the eyes of the workers when the first AD yells, quiet on the set, roll sound, and the director yells, action. During the scene, all activity stops, or it should. By necessity, you can't make noise and you can't distract the stunt people or the actors because that could lead to real problems. This was famously expressed by Christian Bale on the set of Terminator Salvation. Uh, if you haven't heard it, I'll put a, you know, either a link to it or the – or do. Oh, my God. It's, and also it's, the Family Guy parody of that. The Family Guy parody is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. the best part. Uh, the, the point is I that I'm going to get back to is that the actors are acting. The workers should not be doing much or anything if you're smart. Um, we're, so we're all focused on these men and women who adopt a persona that they didn't have 10 seconds ago. If they're method actors, they're even more deeply inside their characters, as if they've somehow slipped into a different person's mind and body. It's really spooky to see. I've watched people watching these scenes, and everyone is transformed by that same magic, the magic of movies, of a movie set where for brief moments reality is set aside. This is even more startling if you could see what a set looks like. Cables, monitors, audio, video equipment, green screens, lights, scaffolding, men, women, tape, clothespins. It looks like a demented garage sale to me. There's also this us-against-them sense on a scent, like what I imagine behind the scenes of a carnival would be like. A section of my first film was shot in South Central L.A. at at an abandoned post office that marked the demilitarized zone between a Latin and African-American gang. The crew literally set up the trailers and vehicles in a sort of circle-the-wagons configuration around the post office. Most times the set is not that severely isolated, but it is a secret world that you cannot come into unless you're given permission. Because writers don't have much to do once a movie is underway, when I'm on a set, I always feel like a kid hiding behind the couch, watching Santa Claus put presents around a tree. In L.A., LA movie sets are commonplace. I mean, big movie sets. But even on micro-budget films, which is what you mostly see here in the Orange County, uh, sets, did I say the Orange County? Um, sets like what most of my friends shoot at, it's still amazing and so precious. Any film, any size, any genre is a miracle. They're impossible to get made, and yet they still somehow do get done. There are so many moving parts. So much can go wrong. So many creative and practical opinions to contend with. It's just crazy. It's hard for me to hear people criticize any movie, knowing what it takes uh, a massive effort to even get a tiny film done. The men and women who worked that film gave it their best, even if that individual best wasn't even close to being good as a whole. They worked hard to do what they were tasked to do, something we all we so easily forget. And of course, I'm no saint. I'm critical too. But I also know the old saying that no one sets out to make a bad movie is eminently true. And that mitigates my venom when an anticipated film just goes wrong. I also know, having been there, that the first day of shooting is filled with hope and joy. And even if the last day is filled with anger and recriminations, the experience remains a special memory for all involved, something of which to be proud, to nod with the sense of accomplishment, to put in that mental scrapbook where all achievements live. This occupation that myself and my friends have chosen is very difficult, and it's rife with pain and anguish. It's more likely to hit you in the teeth than to kiss you on the cheek. And you learn that pretty quickly. It's also something else that can't be quantified, that refuses to be categorized, that resists every attempt to justify. Movies and movie sets, if you're lucky enough to be able to be on one, are simply, completely, and without reservation, 
magical places that inspire us all to do good work always. And I do hope you all get the chance to someday experience that magic. It's a reward to be sought and achieved. So even if you can't be part of a movie yet, keep working, look inside, embrace the inner magic, and be inspired. Do good work. That was good. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.